as we remain standing for the reading of the text from the Word of God this morning from Job chapter 1. It is an extensive reading as we then listen to the Word of God as it exhorts us, encourages us, and admonishes us to trust God, to trust God. I look out upon you today and your faces are not near as bright as they normally are. Perhaps maybe you got a little too much sleep this morning and not invigorated in our prayer time. But there are things going on around in the world that constantly distracts us from the things that could be uh, distracting to our doubts or hindering us. And folks, let me just, uh, from my heart, encourage you today. The Lord is with you. The Lord has prepared this way before you of which you are to walk in. And the Lord will protect you and guide you even in life and through death into the valley of the, the shadow of death and truly mercy and goodness will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of God forever and ever. The place in which we now meet will be a greater and glorious place for all of you. This is your home, people. This is your home. And so as we gather together this morning, I want to encourage you. Do not fear. I know that there's going to be temptations to to fear and to let some news get us down. But don't let the fear control you. As we now turn... I want to tell you that there will always be testings of your faith. There's always going to be threats going on around us. And there was threats in the garden before the fall. How many threats there are that continue much after the fall. But God is gracious and He is in control. As we now come to Job chapter 1, we've had an extensive amount of reading of the Scripture already. Because I believe that the means of grace will sanctify and cleanse and it will be that which is the good news that we need to replace so much of the things that are entertaining our minds. Hear the Word of God beginning at verse 1 of Job chapter 1. We'll continue all the way down through verse uh, 6, no, verse 10 of chapter 2. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and the one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job says, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and 
from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided camels, and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind from across the wilderness and struck all four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead." And I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that he has, a man will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself, which he sat in the midst of ashes. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Our gracious Father in heaven, now we ask that you would send your Spirit upon the reading and the preaching of your Word and fall fresh upon us. Lord, remove any obstacle in the way of our thinking. Remove any idol of our heart of which we have given allegiance. And we pray that we would open ourselves up to the truth and the veracity of your Word and that you would in this open up the eyes of our faith, and mature us in our faith, that we would trust our God in the times of adversity, and the times of blessing, and the times where we do not understand. Lord, strengthen our faith this day in the light of all that's going on around us. And may we come through this trial stronger and better to glorify our God and to bring forth even a greater harvest of spiritual fruit. So may it be, Lord, bring forth that harvest Yourself. And may You work in us now that which is well-pleasing in Your sight. Applying specifically the text here and the message to our own hearts. And we pray You would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we consider this corona virus pandemic that has come over the world, it's important to interpret these matters carefully with a heart of love and through the eyes of faith. When we hear of new happenings out in the world, you're only getting a very small picture of what really is going on. There's lots of data, there's lots of reactions, There's lots of misleading statistics. There is a rapid spread. There are lots of sick people. And there are lots of deaths. There are drastic measures that are in place and that continue to be put into place. And there are rumors that are spreading. It's hard to keep up with it all and truly know what is the good and reliable information And what sound conclusions we could even make based upon that reliable information. But we simply cannot judge these matters with mere reason and data crunching. This is a test. It's a test for everyone. It's a test for God's people. A test of their faith. In this narrative that we have in front of us, Job could only see part of the story But we're given some insights here that he did not see, nor did he hear. And I want you to consider a few things with me from this text as we consider this in the light of what's going on around us. First of all, as we consider Job's character in verses 1-5, through and we see what the Word of God says about him as it cues up the 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 development of this narrative and plot that's about to take place. We see in chapter 1, verse 1 of Job's character, he is one that feared God. He eschewed evil. He shunned evil. He was a man who was blameless, which does not mean sinless. But it's one who kept short accounts and he offered sacrifices as the head of his household for even all of his children. He was not presumptuous upon God, but was living a life of faith and trusting in Him. We find in verse 2 that he had seven sons and three daughters. 
a very specific number, even down to their genders that were given to us that we know later and the end of the story that this was sovereignly detailed, revealed, decreed, and given so that we might know the hand of God even in these details. We see the enormity of His possessions in verse 3. And we see in verse 4 the responsibility He takes for His household. 4 and 5. And in these opening verses of this narrative, of this wisdom literature that the Spirit of God has given us that we might know wisdom, we see a man that God highly favored. And God had richly blessed this man with many material possessions. He was sovereign over how many children, their genders. We see Job's identity was not wrapped up in all of the gifts that God had given. That's not what defines this man. But what defines this man is his relationship to the giver of all of those things. Whether it be life, children, possessions. And so when things are taken away, while hard, his life didn't crumble. It begs us to ask, what is our identity and where do we find our purpose and what drives us in our life and what is our hope? And that's where God tests our faith. We see that this was a test of Job's faith, but it was more than that. We see in verses 6-8, through eight, there was a time of accountability when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1, and again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. This presentation of the sons of God, the sons of God here, probably a, a referent to angelic world, but we see even the demonic world. This was a time that we see a backstory going on that Job did not see, Job did not understand, Job did not hear about, and God did not reveal it to him in his life. So we take so much for granted as we come to the beginning of this, we even see a bit of why this happened. And Job had been crying out for chapter after chapter, why? And that was never revealed to him even at the end. Satan, we find, was among the sons of God that then presented themselves to him. Now, we should not understand this as Satan storming into the presence of God, but we should see this, that Satan was summoned to give an account. There was a reckoning, and accounting that was going on with the angelic realm, and we don't know much about it, but we do know that Satan did not storm the presence. He was not there flippantly. He was not there uninvited. And as we see how each of these are reporting to their Creator, 
we understand that they are not left unbridled in this world to do whatsoever they please. This appears to be a day where God was summoning the angelic beings to give an account. And we find in verse 8 this astonishing and astounding initiation of the Lord Himself when He brings up this man Job. He says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He brings to Satan's attention this man that God had highly favored. It was God that brought out this man to, to Satan. It was God that was setting the stage. It was God that was presenting all of that was going to take place. And it is quite amazing what God Himself says of this man. How would you like it if God were to say this of you? There's none like Him on the earth. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and He shuns evil. That's what God says about His servant Job. Satan answers, God, oh, you, he, you blessed him. That's why he, he loves you and does what he does. You've given him all kinds of things and you've put a hedge about him. You've protected that and you take all that away and you're going to find what has made the man. He'll curse you. You know, that lies at the heart of where many people are today. You take away everything they own. You take away all their possessions, you take away their family, you take away whatever they have, and they have no reason for living. For so many people, this is true. Remove the gifts that God has given, and they will quickly forsake the giver. But what is more important, the, the gifts... Or the giver of those gifts. Now, what God does is He allows Satan to take Job through a tremendous trial. But He specifically limited what Satan could and could not do in that trial. Do not touch his person. We know from the account there were four waves of very bad news that arrived to Job in rapid-fire succession so that one man could hardly get the news out that another man approached. And the Sabaeans had raided Job's estate, took all the oxen and donkeys, and they killed his servants that oversaw them. And as his was breathing hard, another one comes in and he says, your fire falls from heaven. Could that be lightning? What fire is it? We do not know. But it burned up all the sheep and the servants. And as he was still panting and out of breath, a third one comes and says, the Chaldeans raided and stole all the camels and killed all of the servants. And then a great wind. And one who came to report of it blew over the house where all of his children had assembled for the feast and killed them all. Everything that had been accounted for in verses 2 and 3 was now gone in a very short time. It was sudden, it was shocking, and it was incredibly tragic. 
Now consider these bad things that happened to Job. Behind those wicked raids of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, and behind the fire and the bad weather that brought this swift and terrible destruction, was Satan who ordered it all to destroy everything that Job had. And behind Satan was God, sovereign over it all, initiating it all, governing it all for a higher purpose of which Job would never come to know in this life. God was behind it. In all this loss, Job blessed God and did not curse Him. We have the second episode. Again, we see in chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1, that there's an accounting that takes place. And in this accounting, God again brings up Job to Satan. Ah, have you considered my servant Job? Now Satan is allowed to touch his person, but not take his life. Again, we see the controls that God puts upon Satan of what he is allowed and what he is not allowed to do. And what Job was going to experience was going to be quite agonizing for some time. This is not something that would be a a brief time in his life. This is not something he was going to recover from really quickly. But there was going to be a wilderness journey through which our brother Job would endure for the sakes of us all. We will hear him lament in the coming pages, even lamenting of the day in which he was born. And again, Satan with all of his evil and malignant and malicious intent and superpowers could only operate within the specific limits that God set for him. He could not go beyond what God said, no matter how much he would want to and how much he tried. He couldn't do it. And in all this, Job couldn't see the reasons why this was happening. He was only experiencing the physical sufferings and the emotional sufferings and the trials. And it was very difficult for him to say the least it was difficult. And yet out of this narrative, even in the first couple of pages of this 42 chapter book, there are many many lessons for us to consider this morning. And I would like to propose some applications here to our very current scene that's going on around the world as the coronavirus, COVID-19 as we now know it, has been spreading like rapid fire succession across from nation to nation, has entered our borders and there's all kinds of measures and reactions and how are we to think about this. How are we to respond? And I confess, these are not easy times for anybody. But I do know this, that the 
coronavirus, COVID-19, has some very specific limits that God has set that cannot be passed. That cannot be passed. I confess I don't know what those limits are. I'm not presumptuous to think that we are immune to the disease. But we do know that God has set His limits for this thing. And He has a purpose that He has not told us, that He has not revealed, but not a single person can catch this thing or die from this thing that God has not already decreed and specifically directed that that should happen. Many times God can keep His people from plagues like this when the plague is all around. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen here, but He can do that. And oftentimes He does. Or He can set limits to the impact of how it impacts the people and His people particularly. But we do know not a single one of God's children will fall to this plague that God has not already decreed and wasn't already behind it. And we have to be governed by these very principles revealed in God's Word and take courage and confidence in God. And we have to know that He loves His people and that He is very good and that He is sovereignly in control. And none of those truths should ever be brought into tension because the Bible never puts them there. We cannot, we must not view and interpret these matters merely as natural things that will simply take their course with no respecter of persons. You are disallowed as God's people to do that. Whatever happens in this world, whatever happens to you specifically, is not only known to God, but God is behind it all. So there are limits to this thing. Second application that I'd like to bring out, there are so many other things going on behind the scenes. Things that we cannot see, things that we do not hear. And I don't mean that people are talking in secret and we can't see or hear those things. I'm talking about in the spiritual realm that only God knows and He sees, there are things in the invisible world that are going on behind the scenes that we simply do not know about. And you won't be able to see those things, perhaps in this life ever, to properly interpret these matters clearly. See, we want to know why is this happening. We want to know the reasons for why this is going on. We want to make some sense of it all. And so we assign some reasons, some of which are quite arbitrary. 
And somehow we feel a little more settled if we can make sense of these matters. And so often what we might think or conjecture or even dogmatically assert what the reason is, is not God's point at all. I want to elaborate on this a bit as we observe the coronavirus unfold in our world around us. In the subsequent chapters of this book, we're going to find that Job was visited by three friends who came to encourage him, console him, to be with him. They heard what had happened and they came to help. Each in his own way as they began to sit and try to figure out what was going on and they didn't know what to say, all of their mind and all of their theology began to come out and they could speak and what they would speak all had a variation on a particular theme. But they interpreted the fallout that had happened to Job was God's act of judgment upon him. And they constantly called him to repentance for the sins that he had committed that brought this calamity on himself. That was the reoccurring theme. They could only see one obvious answer to Job's dilemma. It was because he sinned, and God judges sin. So therefore, God is judging him for it, and that's why all this has happened. His friends would conclude, so Job, repent of the sins, and God will remove the calamity. Now their theology was right in the sense that God does judge unrighteousness and He chastens unrepentant sinners and He even chases His people for their unrepentant sins. Their theology was right as a general principle that God does do these things. And sometimes that is what is happening when God brings calamity, but that is not what was going on with Job. And we have to be very careful not to take good theology and misapply it to circumstances and people that we are not certain about. We do not have the knowledge or the key to unlock the reasons behind much of what God does or His providence unless He reveals it. By interpreting matters of God's providence, we not only sometimes drastically miss the point, but it can be so wrong that our conclusions themselves can bring God's chastening. We'll fast forward real quick, and if you have your Bibles, turn to the end in chapter 42 and follow along with me at verse 10. Job 42 Verse 7 through 10. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
So Eliphaz the Timonite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nehemite went and did as the Lord had commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job, and the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. God called their conclusions and exhortations to Job folly and very displeasing to him. And he was angry with them. I have friends and colleagues that are calling this coronavirus the judgment of God. I have cautioned them against such dogmatic, specific assertions. We don't know exactly the reasons. Judgment, perhaps, in some ways, but I really don't know. But I would say if we hear, but one godly saint fall to the ground from this virus, can we so assert that it was God's judgment upon him? When judgment for God's people was paid on the cross of Calvary in Christ Jesus. We do know this, that God is behind every detail, including all of the panic, the overreactions, the economy, the spread of this thing, the nations of those who are affected and those who are not. Those who are dying from this and those who will not. And for us to know why He is doing this completely misses the point. Many would be calling us to confession and sins and repentance and seeking God's face in the light of this virus. And you know what I say to that? Amen. God's people should always be doing that. When is there ever an exception for us not falling on our face and repenting of the sins of our own sins and the sins of the world and the church and asking God to cleanse and forgiveness? We are always called as the royal priest of God, to be bringing in these matters in the blood of Jesus Christ before the throne of God until the day of redemption and the glory is revealed in the coming of Christ. This should be so habitual in your life that it should never be a new exercise or an activity you put on in times of crisis. But it should be such a part of our life and prayer life that when times of crisis come, we're already in the habitual habit of doing this and living according to the grace of God, knowing that for a moment that God would remove His grace or mercy, we would be as dust. We can only come before the holiness of God through the blood of Jesus Christ confessing our sins of which we fall so short on a daily basis. We see this from Job's life from the get-go. He was confessing and offering these sacrifices in behalf of his children just in case they were sinful in their house and he did not know about it. He was constantly calling upon God habitually day after day in this life of confession and repentance and trusting in God. That's why he was called blameless. Not because he didn't sin, but his life was a life of such a constant confession and repentance and faith 
in God. That when the day of calamity came, he could stand in the day of evil. John Calvin says the beginning and even the preparation of proper prayer is the plea for pardon with humble and sincere confession of guilt. Nor should anyone, however holy he may be, hope that he will obtain anything from God until he is freely reconciled to Him. So yes, we ought to be repenting. Yes, we ought to be confessing our sins. You ought to do that every day of your life and every time you go to the Lord in prayer. Every time. So what do we know? What do we know is that through this trial of faith, God revealed so much more of Job's sinfulness to himself that he had not previously known. Now God calls him blameless, but not sinless. And yet, there was a lot of things that Job had to learn, and he had to learn of God. And that's why finally when God broke forth in those questions in chapter 38, which went all the way through the end of the book, Job, why, where were you when I created the world? How is this done? Why does the ostrich do these weird things? Why do you do it? Tell me if you know. And the implication was, well, God knows, and there's no way I know. I don't know these things. And all the time, God is saying to Job, yes, Job, you don't know, but I do. And my wisdom is absolutely perfect, and my sovereignty is absolute over all of my creation. I cause things that you would say would just be weird, but there's a reason for it. My ways are not your ways. So he brings forth a man that is stronger in his faith, more aware of the presence of God, more trusting in who God is. And seasons like what we are going through with this virus are times for us to evaluate, to get on our knees, to grow spiritually, to confess our known sins, but also to ask God to reveal those that are not known. And to look deeply at God so that the dross of your life can be purified in the holiness of God's fire and brought up to the surface. It can be skimmed off the top so that you can say with Job that when I am tried, I will be brought forth as gold. And God is at work in the world and in our lives in ways that we do not understand and we cannot figure out His wisdom. That is the very intersection of which we are called to trusting. That's the point of Job. That's the point of this virus. It's a time to turn yourself upward to the glory and wisdom of God and remind yourself that He does all things well. He is all good. He is all powerful. And we are called to trust Him in times that we do not understand. That's the point. That is greater than understanding and knowing why. Or reasoning the senses into an equation that we do not have the interpretation. This is the message of the wisdom of Job. 
When something happens in your life and you're going through a trial and all of a sudden everything comes into question and your faith is questioned, the promises of God are questioned and you're not sure if this is going to be true and you say, why God? You step back from that for just a moment and you say, okay, I don't understand God. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. That's where He wants us at the intersection of where we do not understand. And we have to trust Him. This was an intense season in Job's life. It did not go away very quickly. There was no quick fix for it. There was no credit card he could put down. There was no online Google that he could look up the answers. But in the end, God brought him out of the wilderness of this trial of faith. And God blessed him exactly twice the amount he had before, demonstrating that God had specifically blessed Job and revealed that to us very sovereignly and very deliberately so that we could see and even measure God's abundant blessing in bringing him through the wilderness and giving him the victory. God blesses us. And the trials that He orders for us are far beyond our control, no matter what your lot is. We are called to bless the name of Yahweh and to trust Him. Now there's a third application. Our faith in God will always be tested. And He tests our faith in order to train us up in the faith. See, we come into this new humanity in the resurrection of Jesus Christ by regeneration, and we are born into this new family of which we are now inheritors of a new, a new land and a new culture and a new language, and we have to learn what propitiation means and what walking by faith and not by sight means. We have to learn a new way of living life and how to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. This is quite foreign from any fallen human on the world. And we have to learn all of these things. And so God, as little children, He trains us up, and He trains us through His chastening hand, and He brings us up to mature us in the faith. By the way, God's chastening is not judgment. It's child training. When your child disobeys you, you do not execute justice upon your child. No, you... you you acknowledge He's a sinner. You point Him to Christ who is His way of salvation. And you chasten Him up in the faith. You raise Him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yeah? And when God chastens us, we know that He's doing it because we are His children. See? But God's going to test our faith. He's going to test our faith to prove our faith to Himself us, to strengthen it, to mature it, to cause it to grow up into a man from childhood kind of faith, to reveal more of God so that we can see the glory of Christ more clearly and from glory to glory be changed into His likeness, to be made more fruitful for the glory of God. Let me give you some examples. 
there is not a single example or a single person of God's people that have not been tested for their faith and in their calling. We would spend the rest of our time here this morning going through the examples. Let me give you a few. Abraham, his faith was tested when he offered up Isaac, the very son that he was promised in the covenant Son of God. He says, now go and take, and now you're going to kill your son. And Abraham was faithful to the place where right as the dagger was about to go in, God stayed his hand. Joseph was tested in his faith. He was sent off into slavery in Egypt, and it was difficult. For 17 years, he would be under the trial of God in order to mature him so that he could be the second highest reigning person in the land and be used as the instrument of God through which he would preserve the 70 people and that would grow into a couple of million of which would be delivered from Egypt 400 years later. And by faith, he says, and when you go, take my bones with you. Israel then comes out that 430 years later and God tests them all around along their journey along the way. It could be even from the Red Sea, but he specifically says that the waters of Marah, he leads them through the through the sea. He delivers them from their enemies and they come to waters and they're thirsty and they need water and hear the waters of Marah and they were bitter. And it says, and God tested them there. And they complained. They found fault with God and they sinned with their mouth. All the while, just around the corner, unknown to them at the time, was Elam. The oasis with 12 springs of water. And folks, in your life, when you come to the bitter waters of Marah, and those trials overwhelm you, there is always Elam behind the Marah. There is always Elam. These are cleansing times. These are proving times. We know David, as soon as he had been taken out of the, the sheepfold, and this, this old prophet is standing, and all of a sudden he pours the oil on David's head. Now David is running for his life. He was singing with the sheep before. He was playing his musical instruments, and now he is running for his life from the man who was so jealous that he tried to kill David all the while God's taking him for years through a trial of faith in order to strengthen him to be the greatest king of Israel. David died an old man. He had seen many battles. He had dodged many spears. But it never could harm him because God had controlled it all. Daniel, faithful, blameless. We don't have any negative thing to understand about Daniel's character, though we know he was a sinner, but he, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, greatly tested even to the place of death on numerous occasions. And that which we would cause the natural order of things, throwing into a lion's den, the lion, God, shut the mouth. Daniel was by, by, ready to die, by the way. He was ready to die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, burn us up. Ready to die. But God interceded. There was controls. And there was faith that was tested for greater testimonies because greater things beyond what they could see and the power of the gospel, the testimony in their lives still endures to this day. Nehemiah goes out and he builds a wall. 
Just, just building a wall. And you know what? He, he was leading God's people to build the wall of Jerusalem at great risk to their lives. Why would we risk the lives of God's people to build a wall? Because it was God's wall of God's city, and it was Jerusalem that he was building. He was tested. Every Christian is going to be tested for their faith. The testing matures our faith. It prepares us for the work that God's called us to do. And if we're faithful in the little things, we're going to be tested in those things, and God will prepare us for the greater responsibilities. Every Christian leader's faith is going through a test right now, including my own. How are we going to respond? What are we believing about these things? Who or what are we clinging to? How do we navigate through all of the news and the things that are happening around us on a daily basis, guess what? It has not kept me on my knees on a daily basis. I fall on my knees several times a day. I've got a routine right now that God is drawing me close. And I am praying the Psalms for you and for this congregation. And I am confident this day that we should be here praising God and thanking Him for it. I have no hesitation or doubt about that. Even though I had an email from a fellow pastor this morning exhorting me with all tenacious response not not to meet, not to have people come and risk their lives at such a time as this. I feel the weight and the burden of the responsibility for you. If there is one person that is to come down sick and die from this particular virus, I am going to feel personally responsible. And at the same time, I feel personally responsible to keep you from one of the most essential things and activities of all of life for which you're going to engage in for all of eternity, a time for which we are to come and to the Zion and to the very presence of God to seek His face in behalf of our world. And the government's not going to fix it. But I tell you one thing, for when God's people come and seek His face before His throne, that's when things happen. This is the place that we are to cry out and call and fall upon our knees and trust God, not be presumptuous upon Him, but not to neglect the very thing He's called us and saved us and designed us to do. So many people are worshiping from home today and different things, and I'm not judging or holding that against them, but I have to be responsible to God for how He's leading this congregation according to His words and according to the principles. And one day, Lord willing, as I'm journaling on a daily basis the things that are going on and my thoughts that are are, are going on around this time, I hope we live through it that I can share the story with you of how great God is working in our midst and through this time together in our church. And what great power He is going to show us in the end when He brings us through.
Maybe lots of trials between now and then. We're not claiming that we're immune from the trials of faith that Job and David and Abraham and Gideon and everybody else went through. That's not the point. The point is how we respond. The appearance of natural causes is all around us. But God is very much in control of that. And if you're going to read all the data and read the news and hear the reports, and you're going to judge things merely by your cognitive reasoning, and you're going to put all of the data to rational number crunching, and you're going to extrapolate out what it means for our economy, you're not getting the point. The point of testing is when something like this challenges every ounce in every quarter of our being and thought. And when we see things happening around us and we see people getting sick, we see hospitals overrun in Italy and South Korea, and we see nations that are impacted by this, we are called to believe on God's Word. And what we observe seems to be a tension in what God's Word says. And when that tension comes, it is a place in which we do not understand how to reconcile it, and neither are we called to. We are called to trust God. That's the message of Job. The two converge together and bring these tensions. It's a test of our faith. We may be tempted to change our theology to bring it in harmony with the problems that are going on in our lives. We may be tempted to change our theology in order to accommodate the things that we like or want in our lives. Or we may be tempted to try to make some sense out of it like Job's friends did. And it was called folly. Or we can trust God, leaving the reasons to Him, not demanding to know the reasons why, and let that faith train us up and strengthen us in the promises of God, in all of Scripture, so that we can see the evidence of those things that are not seen. And we can see with the eyes of faith the things that the news can't report. And we can behold our God, who we know is behind this. And that these are not just natural causes. And this process will not only mature us in the faith, but it will prepare us for a greater service for God. It's going to have a testimony, and we're going to tell stories to our grandchildren. But it's not about us. It's about the glory of God shining His light into the darkness of this world. And He's using His people to be those lights that will so shine. Let me encourage you through this season of uncertainty. Unless God has given us a specific reason for why He's doing what He's doing, so that I can clearly interpret these matters, I would not attempt to assign a specific reason like judgment to the coronavirus. In a fallen world filled with darkness and sin, we should expect things like this. And there have been things like this and will continue to be like things like this. And in them, God is showing us clearly that there are some things that are completely out of our control. There are some general principles that I think we can apply. And God will use this to draw His people to Himself. We will be 
in further deep repentance and confession of sins, and we will be praying and on our knees for us and for the world. But through it all, we need to be grateful and thankful because God will use us to glorify Himself. This is a trial of faith for us all. But let me also encourage you to let this be a time when you're on your knees and in the Word more than you are in the reports from the world. Spend time in those Psalms. Read about the trials of faith that God brings to His people through His Word and in His Word and see how He delivers them. Look to the promises that you can claim by faith and ask God for the faith so that you may claim them. Cry out to God. Repent of your sins. And cry out to God for the sake of others. And have compassion. Pray for your leaders. And pray for each other. And this can work so spiritually productive in our lives in helping us put our petty differences aside to love one another It gives us a new perspective of really what is important and the essentials of life. It helps to sift through what the values are and what our identity is wrapped up in. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these things is love. But faith and hope are also abiding virtues. And when we are tried, may God be pleased to bring us forth as gold. Amen? Our gracious Father, we pray that You would take our minds and our hearts and begin to use them and sanctify them in Your Word. And we call out to You to make this time and this season of uncertainties of the world Something now that we are very certain about. And that is you are in control. And there's nothing that can harm us beyond what you have not already decreed. And that you are very good and all things will happen for our good and to your glory. Whether through the trials and difficulties and sadness that may be forthcoming or or through the great victories and delivery. Lord, our life is not wrapped up in the things we possess. But it is wrapped up in the God whom we love. And we pray, O oh God, to strengthen our faith and strengthen our love and strengthen our hope and bring forth a greater goldness and purity of these virtues that You have implanted in our heart through Jesus Christ by Your Spirit. Be glorified in the coming days and continue to give us wisdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.